such a joy to be back with you, beloved, this morning after a week off. We are continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, probably the earliest epistle written in the time of the New Testament from the hand of Paul. Here's how I want you to hear these verses. I want you to imagine you are a congregation gathered in Thessalonica, and life's tough. You're being persecuted, and you're missing the beloved evangelist who planted the church, the Apostle Paul. You're really aching for him and to hear from him, and you receive a letter. Among other things, he writes you this, and I'll start reading in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, but you'll want to see the whole first 10 verses of this chapter. I'll be alluding to more than just 6 through 10. But you hear Paul write to you this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you were standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Suppose you pop into a coffee shop in Athens in 50 AD, and you notice sitting off in the corner the apostle Paul, Timothy, and Silas. You walk over. And you say, Paul, you look tired. And he says, I am. I'm losing sleep. I am weighed down with a burden. What's going on, Paul? I'm concerned for my dear friends in Thessalonica. I left them without a personal farewell and they're being persecuted. About a month later, you're on a trip to Corinth. You pop into a coffee shop. You see Paul sitting over here, and you walk over and say, Paul, you look elated. What happened? Thank you for asking. I sent Timothy to Thessalonica And he has come back with a report about the welfare and the faith and the strength and the joy of my beloved flock in Thessalonica. They're doing well despite persecution. I can sleep at night. In fact, since you just asked, I just wrote this to them. Your verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we render to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Do you see the transformation? His soul has gone from angst to relief, from burden to joy. And what was at the heart of Paul's concern for their welfare? 
five times in this text, he alludes to their faith. Their faith. Why is that Paul's biggest burden for them? It is nothing less than their most prized possession. Now, if somebody asks you, you might say, my most prized possession is my freedom, my opportunities, my spouse, my children, my health, my wealth. But, beloved, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing more precious to your existence than your faith. And that you and I might cherish our faith robustly. I want to show you five aspects of faith from our text. There's an outline in the bulletin if it helps you follow along. Number one, faith lays hold of Christ. Paul came preaching in Thessalonica essentially victory. He said to anyone who desired to live forever in paradise, anyone who longed to see the face of God, anyone who longed to be right, reconciled, redeemed, rescued for the presence of God forever, he said the victory is in Jesus Christ. He has done everything you need to be right with God. He has given himself to die the torturous death your sins deserved. He has credited to you the glory and beauty of his own righteous life. He has cleansed you of your sins. And he has gone to heaven to secure in resurrection glory the very presence of God for you. He proclaimed victory. Which, of course, is breathtakingly stunning to the extent you feel how far you come short of God's standards. It is wonderful to the extent you feel the weight, the guilt of your sin, of your complete inability to give God what he deserves. So you see our first principle. Those who have most offended God most relish Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Or to put it more pithy, those least deserving are most desiring. But you may be thinking, well, wait, Mike, are you saying I am absolutely helpless in myself to do anything to be right with God, and in fact it was done objectively and historically in another person outside of me, Jesus Christ? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what the Bible's teaching. Well, how do I get connected to what Jesus did? Thank you for asking. Faith. The objective work of Jesus for sinners, any who call on his name, you access, you become one with, it becomes yours by faith, trusting it, resting in it, abiding in it, leaning upon it, seizing it and make it your own. Let me illustrate. Suppose someone takes you deep sea fishing out in a fishing boat in the ocean and you fall over and you are not a swimmer, it is certain you're going to drown. Somebody throws you a life preserver. Plop! Falls right in front of you. Do you believe the life preserver exists? 
Yes, I'm looking at it. Has it done anything for you yet? No. Why? Because you haven't taken it. You haven't rested upon it. You haven't become one with its power to deliver. That's faith. You seize Christ, what he's done for you. You become one with Jesus Christ. Someone made faith an acrostic. Forsaking all, I take him. So you see the next principle. Your faith is only as good as the object you trust is to save you. See, faith, by definition, always has a direct object. You rest upon something. You trust in something. You rely on. Faith always has something that it rests in. So here's the principle. Your faith is only as good as the object you trust is to save. Let me illustrate. You go back out in the ocean for a second fishing trip. You fall overboard. Come on, silly, why didn't you buckle in? I don't know. You can't swim. You're drowning. Your death is certain. Somebody throws you a life preserver made out of paper. I mean, it's a really good facsimile. Let's call it cardstock, just for the sake of the argument. So momentarily it floats. And you grab it. Save me, life preserver. And what happens? Well, the paper in the water turns to mush and you perish. And you protest, but I believe with all my heart most sincerely that that life preserver could save me. Well, see the reality? It doesn't matter how strong you believe in that thing. Believing in that thing actually is nothing. What makes it strong to save? Exactly what it is. And this is Jesus, is the only man in history to promise desperate, helpless sinners, if you trust me, I will forever deliver you from eternal damnation, and I will give you paradise as a gift of my grace. Isn't that comforting? It isn't the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of Jesus to save you. And you rest in that. It's probably the longest point in the sermon. Secondly, we are looking at the nature of faith so that, without a doubt, it becomes your most prized possession. Secondly, faith will be assaulted. I'm thinking of verse 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we would suffer affliction, and so it has come to pass just as we told you. Now, I made the point two weeks ago that this is, this is stunningly irrational, that people who make the best citizens... Christians, people who are robustly generous with the resources, Christians, people who are called to love their enemies, Christ followers, people who delight to give themselves up for the benefit of others, to serve others, who pray for others, they're persecuted? It makes no sense. So what's the point? Paul seems to be alluding to the fact the obvious fact that affliction can threaten your faith. But faith prepares you for affliction and faith is refined by affliction. But let me 
points something else out to you that I think is very important, and that's in verse 5. Paul says, for this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. It's the one thing he wants to know. Not how's your business. Not how your kids are doing in school. Those are all important things. Not how's your health. How's your faith? Why? It's the most precious possession. He says, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and her labor would be in vain. So the murderer seeks to do what but the seed that is sown into human hearts? Snatch it up. The liar, the deceiver, the accuser, the murderer would seek to snatch the seed of the word sown. So you're wondering, how does Satan seek to destroy faith? We could do a whole series, sermon series on that. Let me just suggest one. He would keep you from seeing that which keeps faith lively. And what is that? Jesus. He'll keep you from seeing Jesus. He'll keep your heart from hungering for the word of God. He'll blind you to the sight of Jesus. One of the saddest things that could be said about a human being is 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's really one of the most terrifying things you could say about any human being. Satan has blinded them from seeing Christ. Remember that when you are tempted to sit in judgment on people who are unbelievers. They're blinded by Satan. Tragically sad, is it not? But same for you. When you leave here today, you can be sure the evil one is working subtly, craftily, behind the scenes to keep you from seeing clearly Jesus. To keep you from diving into the word of God because faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Number three, faith, your most precious possession. Faith produces love. Look at verse 6 again. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Paul has angst in his soul because there are two facts that are not joined together in his knowledge. They are miles apart as far as Thessalonica is from Athens. Fact number one, he loved the Thessalonians. Fact number two, the Thessalonians loved Paul. Those facts are not joined. He does not know that about them for certain. They don't know that about Paul for certain until Timothy visits he learns of their love for Paul. He assures them of Paul's love for them. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, relax, my friend. They love you as much as you love them. That's what part of this letter is all about. What does it tell you about love? It tells you that your welfare is bound up in my welfare. And my welfare is bound up in your welfare. And if you're not doing well, I can't be doing well. If I'm not doing well, you can't be doing well. As believers united to the one Christ, we belong to each other. There is a supernatural connection about our existences. 
we benefit as each other benefits. We weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Think how different this is than the world does, than the way the world does love. In the world, love is a bargain. As long as you're giving me what I want, as long as I'm not overly irritated by your frailties, your foibles, and your sins, I'll stay in the relationship. But as soon as I become dissatisfied with your inability to meet my needs, I'm gone. That is not Christian love. Christian love is loving as Christ loves and keeps loving you. It bears with weakness. It overlooks sins. It pleads and prays and stays with people who are broken just like we are. Oh, you messed up? I'm not going to disparage you. It's not the way Jesus treats me. We'll see another sermon on their love in two weeks. Fourth aspect of faith. Faith risks sacrificially. Verses 1 and 2. It wasn't, uh, but take a look in your Bibles. Paul begins the chapter. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. One of the five times it's mentioned in these first ten verses. So just before you enter the coffee shop in Athens in 50 AD, imagine that Paul and Timothy are sitting in the coffee shop talking. And what are they discussing? Well, they're discussing the burden of not knowing how the Thessalonians are doing. And it says here, when we could bear it no longer. So at some point in their discussion, it's like they're just sinking under the overwhelming burden of not having this information about how the Thessalonians are doing and how they're loving Paul. So what do Christians do when they're overwhelmed with burdens? They pray. And so we can imagine at some point, Paul and Timothy, maybe Silas is there. They pray. And they plead with the Lord. They express to the Lord, we need to know about the Thessalonians. We need to somehow get them word of our faith. And, and, and Paul says, amen to the prayer. And he looks up at Timothy and he says, Timothy, it just dawned on me in prayer. You've got to go to Thessalonica. Wait a minute, Paul. I'm not leaving you here alone in Athens. You and I know how important our fellowship, our co-laboring, our one-anothering is to the work of our mission. I can't leave you. And Paul says, yes, you must. Getting word to this church is more important than my personal needs. And Paul wins that argument because Timothy does, in fact, go. Do you see the principle? Faith frees you to part with good things for the sake of others. Right? Hasn't Paul parted with a good thing? His company, his fellowship, his praying partner, encouragement he's going to receive from Timothy. For Jesus' sake, some of you have experienced loss of reputation 
Loss of a job, maybe. Loss of promotion. Loss of dignity. Loss of a relationship. For Christ's sake. Christians all over the world in history and today part with their time, their safety, their resources, their parent support, their conveniences, even their lives for Christ's sake. Do you know how missionaries left England in the 18th and 19th centuries? They packed all their belongings in their own coffins. They weren't coming back in body. Only their deceased bodies were going back to their homeland. So what, what would foster that sort of willingness to sacrifice? It's extraordinary, isn't it? What would foster it? Nothing less than Jesus' promise and devotion. No greater love has anyone than he laid on his life for his friends. To know you are the precious possession of Jesus Christ. To know you could not be loved any more than you are loved by God the Father. To know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, parted with everything to secure your eternal welfare in paradise. That knowledge frees you to live this way. So here's your homework, at least from this sermon. Would you ask God to show you, is there something right now or soon that you need to part with, something good, for the sake of extending his kingdom. Now, our high schoolers did that this week. They forewent whatever comforts and whatever things they were doing at home to go into the city and minister to the city. And my guess is you're going to hear testimony soon of how God gave back to them far more than they ever imagined than the blessings they would have had staying at home. Any high schoolers want to say, Amen, Mr. Sharon? Is God, would you do that homework? Is God asking you to give up something good for the sake of the kingdom? And then fifth, faith must be supplemented. So suppose you're in the coffee shop. You sit down next to Paul and Timothy, and actually they're in the middle of their prayer. And you're sitting so close you can hear them pray. And you hear them pray something along the lines of your verse 10. Lord, we long to see the Thessalonians face to face and we long to supply what's lacking in their faith. They say amen and you say, excuse me, I couldn't help but overhear you. What in the world did you mean by praying for these people in Thessalonica? Supply what is lacking in their faith. Could you unpack that for me? And Paul, of course, would say, I'd be glad to. He would explain that Thessalonians, in much the same way as every Christ follower, will see their faith threatened by, verse 7, distress and affliction and temptation. And in light of that, Paul prays that they would what? Look at verse 8. What does he ask the Lord that they might do. Verse 8, you see it? Stand fast in the Lord. There's nothing more important in your life this week than that. Stand fast in the Lord. And critical to standing fast in the Lord is what? Faith. Faith. They're, they're 
almost synonyms. So let me just close by a couple observations about this standing fast idea. Faith, like a plant, needs roots. So, so you don't become a Christian by exercising saving faith in Jesus and, like, and then say goodbye to faith and then move on to other things. No, faith is, is absolutely integral to who you are as a human being, faith. You can't separate trusting Christ from everyday activities. And your faith needs to be strengthened because you need to stand fast in the Lord. How do I do that? Robust faith. So you need roots that go down into rich soil, a plant that benefits from light, from protection, from water, from weeding, from pruning. You may be familiar with Paul's uh, writing in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. So it looks like a practice of habitual thanksgiving. Ellis reminded us at the beginning of the service that we are naturally what? Or did you forget? We're naturally forgetful. We forget how good God has been to us. Thanksgiving keeps in front of us the blessings that God gives us, the way he works in our lives. I think Ellis referred to the deliverances God has worked for us. Thanksgiving and remembering what you were taught. What We could say so much more about that. Secondly, faith like a plant will be assaulted if you remember Jesus' parable of the seed, the sower, Mark 4. The seed is sown in four different places along, uh, along the earth. Satan snatches up the seed sown on the path. And then there's a seed that is sown among the weeds, and here's what Jesus said. Those, there are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things choke it out. Now, do you believe that? that in the next week you'll be tempted to have this precious thing, this Holy Spirit supernaturally given gift of the ability to trust the promise of Jesus, something is working to choke it out, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, and desires for other things. So you have to be constantly on guard for what your heart is desiring. Why is it desiring? And do I desire as more beautiful and desirable than anything the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of your faith? And then lastly, faith needs supply. It's interesting when he says we want to supply what is lacking in your faith. That word supply was used of mending nets. And that would seem to indicate that faith has this ability to catch things, <laughs> right? To harvest things. Like what? Truth, wisdom, biblical instruction, spiritual wisdom, the knowledge of Christ. And the principle I see here is this. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. I, I didn't make that up. Some person much wiser than me made that up. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. Show me a person who is weathering affliction, suffering, loss, temptation, 
hurt, harm, with grace and faith, I'll show you a person who has robust doctrine of providence, doctrine of God, doctrine of the gospel, doctrine of you fill in the blank. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. So beloved, our faith is in Christ and it can be weak, but Christ is never weak. And so the last question I'll ask is, if you would say this morning, yes, honestly, my sight of Jesus is fuzzy. Just admit it. It's okay. Come clean. Be honest. Don't go on satisfied with that fuzzy sight of Christ. Who would that be pleasing to? Only the devil. If your sight of Christ is fuzzy, distant, like turning binoculars upside down and seeing something away from, if that's it, what should you do? Never assume that God has abandoned you. Never. But get with those who are seeing Christ. Faith is nurtured in community. We need each other. Hear from each other. Challenge each other. Comfort each other. Exhort each other. Sympathize with each other. No serious person of faith will ever condemn you for weak faith because we know it would be all of us. But apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, and beloved, diagnose the source of your nearsightedness. So if Christ is fuzzy, you're focusing on something that's causing you to lose sight of him. And remember this principle. You become what you look at. And what a wonderful promise. The more we see Christ, the more we're assured we are in our faith, the more we're like him, the more we know his love. Let's pray that grace for our hearts. Lord Jesus, Draw us to yourself. Show us your absolute, ravishing concern for our welfare, how precious we are to you as your own possession. Give us clear and clear sight of the Savior, that in knowing you, we would rest, live, trust, and long to see others. Enjoy the same. For Jesus' glory's sake, amen.